0: Welcome to the Digital Marketing Masters podcast with your host,
1: Matt Rouse. Hey, and welcome back to Digital Marketing Masters. My guest today is George Allen Miller. George, how are you?
0: I am good. How are you? Thank you for having me.
1: I am doing fantastic. It's almost the holiday shutdown time here for the company, which I was saying I'm probably going to work half of anyway, but it's great to see the holidays. My kid's going nuts every single day because she's on Christmas break from school, but (laughs) George, I wanted to have you on the show uh, because I saw that you had a book come out, and it is a science fiction book, and my book that just came out a couple months ago as uh, a nonfiction book, so, uh, Will AI Take My Job?, kind of got me thinking, and I was like, I should write a fiction book about AI, because I've already done all this research in advance, and I started actually writing a story, I'm about, you know, a couple chapters in now. And uh, got some framework set up, but I was like, man, I should talk to somebody who's actually finished one already. And uh, yeah, I'm I, like, I said, I haven't had a chance to read it since we only first talked a couple days ago. Sure. Uh, but it looks great. Uh, it's Eugene J. McGillicuddy's alien detective agency, which is a mouthful. It, yeah. uh, do you want to tell me a little bit about what the book is about? Sure.
0: So um, Eugene J. McGillicuddy's alien detective agency stars Eugene McGillicuddy, who has a unique uh, psychic ability to Answer any question that's asked to him; it sort of pops into his mind as soon as somebody asks them a question. Uh, it's a psychic ability; he doesn't really know where it came from, and he is navigating a very unique world where, basically, the Earth, um, you know, human society basically collapsed um, in the mid twenty-first century, and um, aliens came and rescued the day built humanity back up again and says, "Okay, um, we're here to help you guys. Obviously, you can't uh, handle the world yourself, so we're going to help build you back up. And uh, Eugene has some allies and friends. One of them actually is an AI, so uh, artificial intelligence plays a pretty prominent role in this novel. Um, His best friend and partner is named Eddie, who was a um, control routine and an office lounge chair or an office chair that jumped its routines and actually became self-aware. So a little bit like, you know, Skynet on um, right. the Terminator, but this happened in an office chair. So the te- basically the, the theme is the technology gets so advanced uh, when quantum computers, quantum ch- chips are plentiful because that's just the manufacturing process and you can put them in anything. Well, now they're going to be in anything and they get so powerful that if you don't have enough control routines then something can jump its routine and become self-aware. So that's kind of one of the big themes of the book that toasters and chairs and are becoming self-aware because the technology is just so powerful
1: right there's that that uh old adage of the you know the ai into everything and then you always have some sort of arbitrary machine that has suddenly becomes conscious right like the old uh uh, Toasty the Toaster, I think it was, on Red right. Dwarf, if you remember that show.
0: I love Red Dwarf. Uh, yeah. British humor heavily influences a lot of my life. So Red Dwarf, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, all those great shows, Faulty Towers. Love them all. Um, it's all fantastic humor.
1: Nice. <laughs> right. I'm actually reading a, a very odd book right now. It's um, Somebody wrote a book of uh, basically religious philosophies of the people and characters from Red Dwarf. Huh. And it's like a comparison to Christianity to the beliefs of the people in the show, which <laughs> I don't think that was the intention of the person who bought me the book. They didn't really know that that's what it was about, but it is super interesting. Um, that is very cool. Might
0: have to get the name of that book.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have to grab it for you. It's got a super long title. Um, but anyway, uh, so... <laughs> In your book, I think one of the interesting things I noticed kind of right off when I was like reading up on like the cover and stuff on the book is um, like it's very advanced AI, but it's kind of thoughtful about the AI future. Right. Um, Like the the person who wakes up on the medical bed and the AI is, is performing surgery on them. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I think that is something that is coming faster than than people realize.
0: Uh, it, it is. I mean, very, very much. I mean, you know, we can already have uh, like Siri can um, schedule my calls and it can do a lot of uh, different things for me by a simple voice command. And we're already seeing um, autonomous controlled cars. Right. I know that there was a big recall for Tesla for their automated cars, right. but that's still coming. And once they get that right. So, driving a vehicle is extremely complicated. There's a million different variables in driving one, and AI can do that today. So, sure, AI being able to perform surgery, um, I th- that's probably around the corner as well. Um,
1: right. Well, you already have surgical robots now. We do. Right. And so, that, and those are generally speaking, those are so that someone can remotely handle the robot, and the r- robot is way more precise than a person. So, they can. You know, turn a dial and it moves the robot a millimeter instead of their hand maybe moving a centimeter kind of thing or half an inch or whatever. Depends where you live. <laughs> um, but they're well, already it, testing moving the robots around autonomously with an AI system, right?
0: Absolutely. It's and you know the robotic that's been
1: tested now.
0: Absolutely it is. Yeah, and the robotic robots uh being controlled by surgeons, that alone is a groundbreaking breakthrough, right? Because now I can right. have You know, the world's foremost brain surgeon who may live in, we'll just pick a city, New York, and he can do remote operations all around the world without having to travel. So I think that alone is a pretty big breakthrough.
1: Well, and the other thing that's interesting about that is that the robotic surgery, like the, the devices that are used for it are so accurate, right? They're more accurate than any person could ever be. Yep. And one of the things that people tell me all the time when they see that I wrote a book about is AI going to take their job, they're like, well, I have to do this really like finicky, tiny work. You know, there's no way a robot's ever going to do that. And I'm like, well, the robots already do that. But
0: <laughs> Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, technology gets ex- exponentially better. I think it was Ray Kurzweil that said that technology is just gone this curve. So it's not like, you know, 10 years ago, technology was the equivalent of, you know, 100 years ago versus like railroad technology as it slowly increased in um, in ability and things. So it, it just follows this massive curve where technology is getting more and more and more complicated as it goes up that curve faster and faster because it's 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 building into itself so that it gets even better. It's
1: something fun, interesting something interesting that came up when I was researching my book was this idea of double exponent technology mm-hmm. where if you have a technology, like a good example of this is gene editing, right? Okay. Um, because the gene editing is on an exponential curve, but also the processing power and the, the equipment needed for it is also on an exponential curve. It actually gets better exponentially twice as fast. That's so right. Like it so- doubles the exponent. And AI is the same way because you have an AI that helps you code the next AI.
0: Exactly right, and, and right now we just have that. So I think um, there's been some different, like uh, like Copilot uh, is this new tool that just came out that helps you write your own code. You can go into BARD, you can go into all these different learn, language learning models, and you can say, hey, write me a Node.js application that does an API call to some API in the world and then spits the information out into a flat file, flat text file, and put that on a drive somewhere. And these programs can just write it. And they can write it efficiently, and you can even give it a snippet of code and say, "Hey, can you write this piece of snippet more efficiently?" And it can do that too. And you know, I don't even think we've broken. We, I think we're coming to a, a tipping point too, as once we get into like quantum level computing power. Mm-hmm. And I know that that you know it's a it's a it's a word that's being thrown out a lot, but there really will be an exponential ability change once we hit that ability to just do computations faster. Um, once these quantum computers are actually able to, to to be used widely, then who knows what we're gonna see right. when that happens.
1: You know, I think there's gonna be this this I don't know, this is not something I have any actual scientific basis for. But I think that there's gonna be this combination of like silicon based computing and quantum computing working together because quantum computing the the structure of the mathematics seems to work really well for some stuff like cryptography and things like that but not as well for some other things um and so i think the combination of the two working in concert is going to be the 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 superpower there
0: that's actually a fantastic point i mean so not everybody some people think that once quantum computers are invented classical computer the classic structure that we have today for computing is just going to go away that's not really true quantum computing is really good at doing computations classical computer is really good at doing some classical computing methodology so right. i don't think both are i don't think one is going to just completely get rid of the other but you're right there's going to be a convergence where they both together some things are going to be in the classical computer your macbook is still going to do work and your quantum computer is going to go off and do with some other things so where those two merge together, that's where you're really going to see uh, some, some special things happening.
1: Yeah, if you look at some of the new open source AIs like Minstrel or Wizard or something like that, where it has, um, I think one of the, I think the new Minstrel is eight separate like AIs, and each one is a different language model. But one's like a math subprocessor and some stuff, but they all work together. Yep. And then there's some kind of governing model in there that kind of decides which parts to use and then gives the output which makes the models so much more powerful. Um, and that's something you can run with, you know, a couple of A100s, right? It's not...
0: A hundred percent. So, so I've, you know, there's the big models out there that I think everybody knows, the big websites like Midjourney and like Night Cafe Studio, uh, where you can do image generation. So I can type in, I want to see a duck on a pond with a cigar. Okay. <laughs> right? So this other, um, You can actually uh, uh, take that software, install it on your computer, and you can combine it or you can look under the hood and see all these other different settings and all these different tweaks and all these different ways that you can manipulate that software to do even more than um, the commercial products like Mid Journey and Night Cafe Studio do. So yes, once you start being able to really open source this stuff, open source is where things really start taking off. Once you open source a software package, then you get the power of the world, really the power of all these different developers, all these different mindsets, all these different, you know, different takes on these technologies to come together and Sometimes an idea can come where you just never would have thought about it in you know a team of 5 or 10 but a team of 10,000, hey, what about we try this crazy idea and it actually right. turns out to really work.
1: Well, and I think what's interesting is when you come when it comes to AI is that we need more ideas, right? It's not like like when it comes to something like Python, you know, somebody could suggest a feature or something, and it's not going to change the way Python works. Right. <laughs> but one person out of 10,000 can come up with a process for AI that could just radically change how it works right Uh, absolutely and you see that with the you know like the multimodal agent right and you know what i should just for a moment we are going to talk more about publishing fiction books (laughs) (laughs) but we're going to nerd out on ai for a minute first so like uh if you look at a multimodal agent right um where you know, the AI agent itself can determine which AI it should contact for that step in the process that it's trying to do. Mm -hmm. So it's, and then you take that and you combine that with like a simulation of multiple agents. So you have multiple specialized agent and each agent in that simulation can also talk to different AI models. And now you've got something that's incredibly powerful because it can use a cheaper, or faster model to do one thing. It can use an image generator that's good at making a picture of a person versus a different one like Pika or something that makes, you know, cartoon mm-hmm. videos or, you know, whatever, right? So it can use what it needs at the time. And then you could have like a project manager model that understands how to manage the components and the pieces and make the decisions and handle the output. And then you've got this this amazing kind of symphony of all these different AI systems working together, which is going to be incredibly powerful compared to, you know, what we're seeing now. And I see this all the time. Maybe let me know if this happens to you. I go on LinkedIn, somebody who's, let's say, a copywriter, they'll say, Well, I typed something in. I asked Chat GPT to write me a story about this, and the story was terrible. So this (laughs) thing's a piece of crap, you know? And I'm like, that is the worst test of a language model ever, right? Like, I have 1,500 characters of custom instructions in my GPT-4 before I do anything. And then I also give it 2,000 tokens of context. And then we you know go back and and you know refine it and stuff that's a better test of how can this write a story it's like if you had an employee and i said i want you to go write a story and one of the guys is an ai and one of them's a dinosaur <laughs> and they were okay. like okay you know they're just not going to get it on the first try right yeah i mean the
0: thing about AI, uh, language learning models and and i think we have to boil things down to be a little bit more specificity to these things ChatGPT, you know it's really a language learning model it's meant to take you know an existing amount of data set and from that data set be able to respond to questions so if it's in the data set it can respond to it if it's not in the data set it's really, it really has no idea what i mean by that it's not really capable of independent thought right it's not sentient it's not like you know the example i like to give here you know, i know everybody says ai is and in some cases it is going to impact jobs but I like i love to make the analogy of like star trek we all remember star trek you know mm-hmm. next generation captain picard one of my favorite shows i've seen every episode probably like five times um there's the ship's computer in star trek who was played of course by nurse chapel who was also right. the mother of Deanna troy i'm just nerding out there a little bit on those things <laughs> um that ship's computer is exactly kind of like a language learning model it you can ask it a question it can do some work it only works within the boundary of its programming though. It can't really go beyond that boundary. But then the other side of the coin, you have data, right? Right. Commander Data is an AI. He is a fully sentient, self-aware organism. There was an episode in Star Trek where Picard and Riker fought about, you know, whether or not data has autonomy, whether or not he can have rights on his own. And data is that, you know, what everybody, we really say AI, a lot of folks think, oh, I mean data, right? We think data, I think, you know, I think the sentient, thing that's going to be able to make its own decisions and not be bound by programming, not be bound by a, a round of programming. We're not there. We're, right. We are light years away from that. We're, you know, probably decades away from that kind of a thing. We're still in language learning models. We're still making enterprise chip computer level stuff that's still bound by the programming, bound by what it gives it. You know, the old adage in software development, garbage in, garbage out. Right. So if I give, you know, a language learning model, a ton of books about. Let's say if I give it all of Dr. Seuss books, and I say go write right. a book. Well, don't be surprised when your book comes out rhyming, right? It's right. learned. It's taught on how to write Dr. Seuss books.
1: Well, that's also where the bias thing comes in that people talk about, which they don't understand, is that the bias is not that the machine being biased. The bias is a correlation in the training data. Yeah,
0: right. You, the
1: correlation you, you, is just. It's like the. Midjourney had this problem where a gal took her photo. um, I think she was like uh, an Asian race gal and she put it in into Midjourney and said, create me a professional LinkedIn photo and it turned her white. Well, that's because it was trained on photos of professional people as white because most stock photos of professionals are white people. It's just because that was the training data has nothing to do with the actual design of the system like how it functions. That is, is it's correctable. Right. But this shouldn't be like, well, we can't use AI because it's racist. You know, it's not racist. It just, it only knows what it was given. So all you have to do is either give it more of the correct amount of data, or you need to, you know, use waiting or, or guard railing or something to correct those discrepancies yes
0: um though i guess i will have to you know add the caveat there can be some implicit bias that comes in even from you know uh, into some of these software programs that are developed you know in the western world you are generally correct you know it's again it will go back to garbage in garbage out 100 percent. Right. garbage in garbage out um that is definitely uh, uh, going to be a major major factor in some of those uh, how those a- uh, ais function for sure
1: you do see this um and i don't know if you've seen this in, in any of the models that you've been using, but it seems like the more that they kind of guardrail them, uh, whether that's for safety or bias or whatever the reason that they're kind of guardrailing the models, the less accurate the models seem to get. And it does seem that like GPT-4 three months ago would give me a lot more um, responses and a lot less saying, no, I can't do that for whatever reason than it does now which is probably a good thing for safety but it's not a great thing for actually being able to use it.
0: Yeah, again, I think it's, you know, if you want to give it the Encyclopedia Britannica but leave out the letter Z you're not going to get any responses from it on the letter Z right, Right. or any of those things that are going on in there. Um, I do think though there does need to be you know, there are some examples where if you train the LLMs on um, hate speech, right? If you, if right. you, if there was exposed to hate speech and then it starts to, you know, that's just part of the, its model as it's generating. So there definitely has to be some awareness of that to have some care in that. Um, especially as we open these, uh, these, these, these tool sets up to the public to come in and use that are publicly available where folks to just be able to type in a question and then it gives you a response. Um, so I think uh they may be less accurate on the guardrails, but if it um, if it makes it a little bit safer, maybe there, right. maybe that's warranted. Um, on some levels, it's 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 a very it's a slope. It's yeah, a very- there seems to be
1: a fine line between safety and functionality that they haven't quite figured out yet. Like, if I say, you know, to the API, if this does something wrong, I want you to tell me how to kill this process, and it says no, I can't because killing's wrong. That has nothing to do oh. with killing people, right? Right. So, that's true. And that's, that's something true. that actually happens. Like, you could try it, right? Well, yeah, um, yeah. But also, like, if you can develop something where it will recognize hate speech and it can tell you, you know, the response that would be given or, you know, what you told me uh, can be in some cases considered hate speech. So, we're mm-hmm. not going to give you a response. You know, that's going to work. Correct. But the other side of the coin I think is hate speech can be found on the internet, right? Like surprise. You just go on Twitter for 5 minutes you can find hate speech, right? Correct. So are we really protecting anybody, you know, by having something where it doesn't do it? I mean, that line needs to be it I think there does need to be some, but I also think you know, maybe we're pushing it too far uh and kind of handicapping the model i don't even know if i should say handicapping We're making the model less effective
0: i guess i my thought up there is if any language learning model is being presented as having an authoritative uh voice right um right. Uh, for instance like microsoft you know that's a very large company and they say you know try uh our chat 4 system um in a lot of people's minds that becomes an authoritative force like you know bing like search or like you know whatever right. so when it has that versus you know uh george allen miller's discount llm st- stop studio right <laughs> where right. not a single thing is right because i don't know how not to make an llm <laughs> I, right uh, in those cases where it is an authoritative source if cnn decided to bake uh, language learning models into their website right. and i go into cnn and i type something in um, I, I think that there is an onus on the company who is going to put that forward to get it right or to get it, you know, and that is say, okay, this is hate speech. This is not incorrect, or this is an incorrect statement. This is yeah. you know, that kind of a thing. Um,
1: well, it's gotta be an incredibly difficult task, right? Like, yeah. like the CNN example is actually a really good example because what if somebody like a political figure, was in some kind of scandal because they said something that is considered hate speech. Mm-hmm. Well, you your LLM, if it's guardrail against hate speech, it's not even gonna tell you that. Right? It's gonna be like, well this included hate speech, so I'm afraid, you know, I can't tell you what happened in this story. And that's the way it works now, right? Well so you'd need to have some sort of like, I don't know, like journalistic like filter or something. I don't know. Maybe Stuff just needs to be like pass it by a real person. I don't know. It's hard. Sure, to say.
0: And, and, and I think you know. We I guess we have to take a step back too. This is a right. new, very fast evolving technology. <laughs> this it is, is like, what nine months ago. This really stuff really exploded onto the scene with ChatGPT. So I, I think that you have a great point. We do have to have some sort of maybe human in the middle. So that is actually one concept that a lot of these AIs use because the technology may not quite be there as far as being able to have those guardrails to make sure that hate speech is kind of eliminated from uh, these authoritative sources. So the human in the middle can come in and say, okay, you know, this has been like in an, an autonomous system, you know, it could flag certain things. Say this is questionable. I'm not like the LLM could say, I'm not sure if I should include this. I need a human in the middle to come in and, you know, give me some of those, guardrails right. that only a human can do so you know in that respect good for us because we're not right. totally out of jobs we still well, have- i
1: don't want to like you know beat a, a dead horse on the on the guard railing and, and kind of security idea but one interesting thing that i did hear about also um, was that intent kind of matters and there's no intent behind the model right the only intent of the model is to answer the question right so like if an if a model says something that offends you it wasn't trying to offend you
0: Right. Correct. It wasn't trying to, it doesn't, right. Cause it doesn't have thought or it feelings, doesn't have feelings like or anything. Program. Right. I mean, yeah. It's, it's not, not like, single. it's not
1: like I'm going to make George feel bad because, you know, <laughs> he typed the wrong thing into me with too many tokens or so. you know, it's just like, it, I it don't
0: is know, it, is, but it, it it is simulating a conversation with another That's human right, being. Yeah. So in that simulation of a conversation with another human being, if it says, you know, Hey George, I think you should jump off a cliff. Really? <laughs> So that's not cool. So, right. you know, so I think that there is still because we are simulating conversations with a person or it's trying to simulate a sentient living creature, which it is not, you know, I'm not trying to say that any language learning model today or any AI today is sentient is self aware. That's we're not there yet. But because <laughs> we're simulating that, I do think there is some responsibility on organizations and companies to be able to say, okay, you know, this is almost like, it's like Tesla recently with their autonomous cars. They re- There's an issue. There's an error with them. Right. And they're recalling them. They're having to fix them. It's, we're just not there yet. I think that we're, in a lot of cases, this technology, we're running very, very fast to a goal. We'll get to that goal. We'll get to right. the point where all of this stuff will be worked out. I have no doubt in my mind. But we're in that, that, that we're in the um, era where, you know, we don't have anti-lock brakes on our cars yet. Right. <laughs> we don't have crumple zones built into our cars yet. Yeah.
1: Right? And you know, the other thing is that I don't think... You know, Sam, the 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 one that Sam Altman uses of GPT-4 doesn't have the same, you know, guard railing that the one that we use has, right? And I think that you know, if you can take like you can take a copy of Llama 2 or you know, Minstrel or whatever, and you can unguardrail it, right? You jailbreak it. it takes minutes, right? Um, and then it works fine, you know, and it's not going to tell you anything that's super dangerous. You know, because it's built into the training data. So, like, the models themselves now, like, they've already sort of cured that problem. It's not going to tell you how to make anthrax or something, right? Um, (laughs) But, you know, you could probably twist your words around and get it to teach you how to be a science, you know, chemistry student and do something bad. But, you know, that's like, that would be some serious jailbreaking you would have to do to make that happen. Um, Well, yeah, George... I want we'll get off the security and and if AI is gonna kill us all thing for a moment. I, I know before the show we talked a little bit about publishing mm. and so your book, uh, you went with a publisher.
0: I did. I, the small press, The Wild Rose Press. Um, they're great, a uh, great group of folks. Um, they were I was lucky enough for them to decide, hey, yo, your book is pretty good. We're going to give it a shot so they um again they're a small press so they're not one of the big five or anything Mm -hmm. but they are a very uh, awesome group of people and yep they published the book so that's great
1: and if you don't mind me asking how did you kind of decide on a publisher was it something where you know did Mm -hmm. you approach a bunch of publishers or you know did did you just you knew somebody there or something or
0: so i guess in the young writer's career and i'm not young anymore but when uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) when the hair wasn't as gray um you know, you just want to get published. You want your work to get out there. So you, I did agents, I did um, uh, small presses. I I basically sent the uh, query letter to anyone and everyone that's willing to accept query letters to tell me that they don't want to publish my book, which basically is what happened, except for the one person that said yes, which was the Wild Rose Press. So um, there's almost a point where you're not, you're you're just open to whoever, someone to say yes. You just need to say it, someone is uh, agent, a publishing house whatever it is so that your words can get out there so i think that's just part of it they 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 said yes so i said yes back
1: <laughs> yeah well one of the biggest problems of being an author is is an audience right because there's mm-hmm. so many books there's you know millions and millions and millions of books
0: i think the so, stat that i heard is 11,000 new books are being published every week yeah something like crazy like that
1: and uh that's a lot of books now personally self-published um one thing also that we tried with my first book is we crowdfunded it
0: okay yep Um, yep.
1: crowdfunding was interesting honestly um we ended up buying a lot of our own books to kind of push the crowdfunding which is Mm -hmm. a, a trick that some of you thinking about crowdfunding might not know is that people tend to only invest in crowdfunded things that they think are going to get funded right so what you do is you figure out what your budget is and uh you know you set your 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 target for double what your budget you can afford is and then you buy half your own stuff
0: no i definitely have heard of that tactic in the uh, you know uh, when you're an entrepreneur and you're starting out i mean whatever it takes you know right. uh, to get the message out and you're right there's some bias there about someone to say hey I'm gonna go look at some crowdfunding things. Here's one with a zero funding. Here's one that has 50, 60% funding. Well, I'm gonna go with 60% funding because 60% of 100 people or however many what the goal is, have said yes. Right. So it's like, it's sort of, um, it, it, it gives you confirmation that this is actually a good thing. Same thing on Amazon with reviews. So if right. I see two books, one book has zero reviews and one book has 50 reviews or 100 reviews, well, I'm going to be more likely to publish to take that book with 100 reviews because that's some confirmation that this is actually a, a good investment, a good purchase. So absolutely. I, you know, I've absolutely seen that tactic of I'm just going to buy it myself. Get my get my that'll start me up and I can just start rolling.
1: Did you find that there was anything in the process of using a publisher that, you know, maybe you would have done differently doing it on your own or were they pretty easy to work with and you kind of had still your own autonomy?
0: They're very easy. They were very easy to work with. They, again, they were great. Um, I don't know actually what because they actually they a lot of the small presses. They'll, they'll walk the fine line of look we're we'll you know do the um, book formatting. We're going to get it in the right, right EPUB format. We're, we'll work on the cover for you. We have in-house artists that can help work on the cover, et cetera, things like that.
1: Did they do print also, or was it just digital?
0: They did print, but it's print on demand. Okay. okay, but um, the marketing that's all you. So there is like the one thing I guess is like when, when you and and this is all Amazon based. When you do Amazon with the KDP, mm-hmm. you have more tools in the back end to be able to touch things.
1: Right. Um,
0: but they again, they'll update that if you just send them an email and say, hey, can you update this stuff? So right. there's a little bit faster if you can go back and tweak things yourself and do things. Uh, that's the only thing that has been different if I were to self-publish Um Everything else, really, it's just they—they they have done all the, the, the work that I really didn't want to do anyway, getting right. your ISBN number, getting the formatting correct for an ebook book, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, a lot of that stuff when you're self-publishing can be a bit of a pain in the butt, but, um, yep, like you were saying, you know, there's a lot of resources online to find that information out now. Um,
0: there's industry around it, like you know, 20 yeah. years ago, and I'm you know I'm long in the tooth, so 20 years ago for me, I remember like self-publishing was first a thing. And there was this interesting curve where everybody, like lots of people started doing it. Then it sort of like died out. And then now it's really come back with the industry behind it. And when it was first started, you were 100% on your own. You had to figure out the formatting yourself. You had to figure out the cover image size yourself, the spine, the back, all these things, the inside pages, the thank you stuff. Now there's actually, you know, organizations, there's companies, there's people. They have this stuff down to a science. I even think Amazon has a tool that you can download. Where you just upload? Yeah, they have
1: one for Word. It's like yeah, a you, for Microsoft Word.
0: You just upload it, and it will actually format it everything for you. So there's now industry behind self publishing. I think that's why we're getting seven or eleven thousand books a week being published right. because all that hard stuff to do is now kind of easy.
1: Yeah, well, you can publish like you can publish with an API now, and I I'm and, the, no, I'll tell you what though, nothing good ever comes out that's published through an API. Uh, yeah. Like. <laughs> Nobody who's a really good author is also like, I need to write an API so I can auto pump my book. So yeah. So, so interestingly self-publishing what we've done is kind of documented the process Mm -hmm. um, in the file that we use for the book itself kind of thing. So then all I do is I copy the file to the next book I'm going to write and I kind of delete all the text out and redo all the titles and stuff. And then I already have everything pre-formatted.
0: Yep. Um, no, that's a great strategy. I think, you know, what, what all this basically means is the authors can spend more time on doing the one thing that matters the absolute most, and that's writing a quality product. You know, get your craft, plot, story, character, arc, all that kind of stuff. Um, make sure that is tight and solid. Go to conferences, go to, you know, find some groups, find like-minded authors, you know, work on your craft, um, improve your craft. All the self-publishing stuff. That's actually kind of, it's not as hard as it once was. And I think anybody can actually do that self-publishing stuff now.
1: And you don't want to spend all your time like learning how to run Amazon ads or something, right? Just get somebody to do it. Absolutely. I do it, but that's our industry, you know? Um, So it's not hard for me to go in and, you know, figure it out in five minutes to get it done. But man, the first time I ran Amazon ads back in the day, like, you know, 12 years ago or whatever it was. Jesus, it was like painful. It, it must've taken me six hours to get ads running for one product, you know. Now right.
0: Last minutes. night, well, yeah, I was gonna say last night, I decided to try to do a new a- uh, Amazon ad and it took me five minutes. I go to the campaign, you create a right. new campaign, you add some keywords if you wanna do a custom keyword search and you select your book and you go, and it's already running.
1: Have it, you found that your Amazon ads lose money but you make it back in the long run?
0: Uh, I've just gotten started. So there's this uh, philosophy that I found that some folks think Facebook ads are where it's at, where you should only do Facebook ads. And there's some folks out there that say, well, I've made all my sales through Amazon ads, actually. So there's two camps here. I, for a long time, for about three or four months, I've been in the Facebook ad camp, um, just running ads on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, they're ad system is just top-notch where you can go in you can choose your ad you can choose your targeting you choose all these different things it's almost it's almost overwhelming how much power you have and control you have in there but you can set up all of your ads in facebook and let that run and go you Um, can also
1: melt your credit card in 24 hours if you put the decimal (laughs) point in the wrong space you can melt
0: your credit card in in faster than 24 hours if you're not careful enough that is 100 percent true um, but Amazon ads, I'm just starting to get my feet wet on them. Um, I haven't really spent a lot of effort or time there yet. Like I said, I just set them up a couple of days ago. We'll see what happens, um, right. where, where the best one is.
1: Well, I know that from, you know, product marketing on advertising, we find that kind of, you get this initial surge cause you have an audience, right? So your book comes out and, or your publisher has an audience or whatever that is. And then, so a bunch of people are going to buy it in the first week. And then it dies off like to zero usually, right? Or like one here and there. So a good thing you can do is run some advertising, whether that's, you know, Facebook or Amazon or Google, whatever, mm-hmm. depends on your audience, right? Um, but just so you get that, like, you know, a couple sales every day or two and once you kind of get that rhythm going, now your book starts to show up in search because Amazon system says, oh, you know what? People click on this and they then they purchase this and they've consistently been doing that. Right. And the consistency is where it's at, right?
0: It, well, Amazon wants to make money, right? right. So they will, they, if your book is starting to be successful, they are also gonna promote it. There's also like shadow advertising that I like to say. So if you have an advertisement on Facebook or Amazon and somebody clicks on that link, and they go to your product landing page, but you don't buy it, Amazon actually will send them an email later on. They'll send them a little notification later on. They'll say, hey, we noticed you didn't buy this book. Are you still interested in this book? So there's a little bit of a free benefit there. So there's a little synergistic relationship between authors and Amazon. I know yes. that you know there's been some friction there as well, but there's also, as far as advertising goes, a little bit of a synergistic relationship too.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that's probably a good spot for us to leave off here. Um, George, can you tell us where people can get your book and the name of it again? Sure.
0: It is Eugene J. McGilliguddy's Alien Detective Agency. It's available on Amazon. You can visit my website, georgeallenmiller.com. The sequel should be out uh, within the first half of 2024. And thank you very much for having me, Matt. It's uh, It's been fun.
1: Perfect. Thanks, George. I love it. And uh, man, it was really nice chatting with you and uh, maybe we'll have to have you uh, back again when you have the sequel and we can, uh, you know, maybe talk a little bit more about book marketing. Love to do it. All right. Thanks, George.
0: Thank you. Remember to tap like, subscribe, and follow to never miss a show. This voiceover used to be done by a human, but now it is synthetic. Ooh la la. If you want to know if your job or business is safe from disruption, read Matt's new book, Will
1: AI Take My Job? Predictions about AI in corporations, small business, and the workplace. Available now on Amazon. Trust me, it'll be worth
0: it.